you know, initially uh, we're like, yeah, let's play faster than the Ramones. And then we heard the Dickies and it's like, well, let's play faster than the Dickies. In 1981, we're 20 years old. We have no money. We're living in a van. We're living on people's couches. You know, we have sleeping bags that smell like cat piss. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's what you do. You're just like, oh my God, this is the greatest life. You know, I have six bucks. And, and if we sell enough singles and we find the hip record store and we get them to take them on consignment, we'll have enough gas money to get to San Francisco. We wanted to record when we were hot off a tour. Even once we had recorded Land Speed Record, there was, I think, perhaps as long as a year where we had uh, played around with different mastering companies and deciding who should press it up. And It was our precious little baby. We wanted to make sure it was in good hands. Welcome to Do You Remember, a podcast about Husker Du from The Current. I'm Mary Lucia. In the last episode, Bob Mould, Grant Hart, and Greg Norton established themselves as the Twin Cities' fiercest punk band. In early 1981, they released their first 7-inch single, Statues, backed with Amusement. Now they were ready to branch out, tour relentlessly, and release some records. As Greg Norton told The Current's Brian Oak, and that March, we go play our first out-of-town shows down in Chicago at a bar called Oz. And it was the third and final location that Oz was. Oz was one of those classic punk clubs where basically somebody found an abandoned building and was like, well, let's put in a bar and uh, sell booze and have punk bands play. And we don't need working toilets. You know? <laughs> it's punk. So this is another great Grant Coop. Grant was a very creative thinker to make things happen for the band. We needed to get to Chicago. We needed to get the gear down there. He actually talked a guy that he knew that worked at a car dealer into letting him test drive a station wagon for the weekend. So we drove like this Ford station wagon down to Chicago with all the gear, played at the Oz. The the guy that, that ran the Oz was like, hey, yeah, you guys are pretty good. Why don't you stick around and uh, Black Flag is coming to town. Why don't you guys play the after party? So we're like, yeah, would love to. So we went and saw Black Flag, the Effigies, and Strike Under open for them. So that's how we met those guys. And also the guys from Naked Raygun we met that same weekend. It was an interesting gig. So Henry was actually on tour with them, but he wasn't officially their lead singer yet. So Des Cadena was still doing lead vocals, but Henry would get up and do some stuff. And uh, at the after party, we got out, we played ferocious set. We get done, there's a little closet behind the stage, and Grant goes out and he looks, and there's a can of blue paint. So he's like, ah, grabs it, and just kind of flings it around the door, out towards the dance floor, and it kind of hit the drum kit, fell over, hit the floor, and, and the can opened up, and there's this big puddle of blue paint in front of the drum kit. And this young lady is like, oh, I'm going to go scoop up some blue paint with this symbol and start drizzling it over the drum kit. And Grant's like, hey! So he goes out and he's going to try to stop her, but he slips in the paint, ends up kind of accidentally body slamming her into the blue paint. And a couple of the guys from Black Flag helped her up 
but then she had blue paint on these black leather pants, and so they started like bouncing her off the wall and leaving like these big blue <laughs> butt prints all up and down. They just everybody thought it was hilarious. But that's that's kind of how Black Flag discovered Husker Du, and so you know some contact information was exchanged there. Black Flag's Henry Rollins recalled seeing the band for the first time to Brian Oak. Incredible energy they had, and you have. Greg, the bass player, kind of holding it down. And then you have Bob Mould, who is brilliant, but just he just kind of kept everything in check. And then there's Grant, you know, on, on drums and vocals, who was also brilliant, but was just kind of this tornado, you know, yelling and screaming and bashing away. And so you had this thing that was trying to keep itself together while it tore itself apart, like, you know, both sides of the brain, you know, the intellectual and the emotional were all happening at once. And it was a, a dynamic I don't think I've consciously ever witnessed before where you could see it. Like one guy's trying to keep it together. One guy's trying to to rip it apart, you know, in this kind of like almost uh, celebratory shamanistic, you know, kind of way. And it was just an interesting kind of tension. And meanwhile, the songs are really good, and they can both sing. And it was just this kind of battle uh, of a band. And that was the thing that was really striking, was like this this sheer energy, a tornado of sound. That Chicago show gave the band the momentum to do some serious road work. Bob Mould gave me the details. To set the stage for people, it's the summer of 1981. Mm -hmm. Husker Du has been a band for a little more than two years. And over that time, uh, you know, whether it was through McClellan or whether it was through shows that I was helping to book with Fred Gartner over at Goofy's Upper Deck, mm-hmm. um, Husker Du was able to get on the bill with tons of hardcore bands. Yeah. You know, whether it was bands like DOA or Dead Kennedys or Black Flag. Uh, British bands like GBH and Antipasti, Bad Brains, all, you know, it, it was a lot of that, you know, opening for bands, getting to know them, mm-hmm. them seeing that we're cool. And when the time was right, they were happy to return the favor, you know, giving us a place to stay, booking us shows. So, you know, we're in the summer of 1981 and we're trying to put this tour together, you know, that starts with, you know, six nights at the Calgarian Hotel. <laughs> You finish the first set, you grab your guitar, and you run up the back stairs to your to the room that you're all sharing. And you're just like, holy shit. Yes. <laughs> Looking out the front window of the hotel while there's, like, fights on the street everywhere. Because <laughs> this is 1981 in Calgary. <laughs> you know, going on to Vancouver and spending a week hanging out with DOA and the Subhumans. And Ron Race, who was one of the original singers for Black Flag, was living up there. And... We were staying in an abandoned house downtown that that hadn't been cleared out for the upcoming World's Fair, and you know Ron would jump these barbed wire fences in Chinatown and steal boxes of you know pre-cooked barbecue ribs and mm-hmm. strawberries, and we'd sit up and sit in this abandoned house and you know just eat. <laughs> that's all we because we didn't have any money. Right. So, right. You know, and then we go down to you know we go down to Seattle and we'd hook up with people there for you know for for a week you know. Dennis and Myrie, who I think started the Rocket, you know, we'd play punk rock shows at Oz and Gorilla Gardens, and 
I remember Duff McKagan wanting to watch MTV all the time, and we just like threw him out of the room because we wanted to watch wrestling. <laughs> in 1981, we're 20 years old. We have no money. Mm-hmm. We're living in a van. We're living on people's couches. You know, we have sleeping bags that smell like cat piss. Mm-hmm. It's you're just like, oh my god, this is the greatest life. You know, I have six bucks, and and if we sell enough singles and we find the hip record store and we get them to take them on consignment, we'll have enough gas money to get to San Francisco, where you know Jello Biafra put up with us for two weeks and got us six shows in San Francisco, and you know it was just incredibly helpful. They gave us a place to stay. They gave us shows. They gave us food. You know, we get went and got food stamps and went down to the you know to Safeway on Market and. You know, it's the safe way that I still go to in mm-hmm. San Francisco. You know, it's it's like, it's mind-blowing. More after this short break. Dead Kennedy's lead singer, Jello Biafra, had been a fan of the band's first 7-inch when he was reintroduced to them, as he told writer Michelangelo Matos. I'm on the East Coast. I run into DOA, and uh, Randy Rampage and others said, yeah, we ran into this really good band from the Midwest called Hoots Gradu. And I remember that, and then I saw the record, like, oh my God, I know who this band is. But, of course, I didn't really know who that band was because by then their sound had changed. But we got them on a bill with us at the Showbox in Seattle, but unfortunately I didn't get to see them. I had to do my own usual body prep and everything else to get ready to play our show. That said, yeah, come on now, we'll try and do something in San Francisco. And so then... One fine day, there's a knock at the door at 9 in the morning, and my now ex-wife answers the door, and there's Grant with that Cheshire Cat grin of his, Hi, we're Husker Du. We've come to stay. And in they came, and they didn't leave for a month. They got stuck with no money, no gigs, at least for a little while. I had to pretend that was their landlords. They could get some either welfare food stamps or both, but... They also were a real delight to have around. I mean, great sense of humor, really intelligent guys, and, of course, uh, very musically ambitious. And I hadn't heard the the fast stuff yet. But uh, soon did get to see them two or three times at the Mabuhe. And, of course, they they tore everybody's head off and stuff. And, uh, you know, planned themselves on a map. I mean, they were at that point a hardcore band, although they come to that kind of galloping hardcore style that they have on land speed record um, kind of independently of what was going on in Southern California or Washington, D.C. and Dead Kennedys and God We Trust hadn't come out yet and stuff like that. So they they came out of the super fast stuff in their own way and were recording themselves every night. And of course, one of them became the land speed record album. I have another concession few days earlier, which is noticeably slower tempo than Land Speed Record, and uh, has some other songs on it, too, and I would ask him a year or two later, what's this song, what's this song, and Bob was just like, I don't remember playing that, they were just so prolific and doing it so fast, all kinds of great Who's Produced songs that they don't even remember existed. You know, I remember finishing up in San Francisco. We, you know, Biafra after two weeks, he's like, you guys got to move on. You know, there's right. another band coming, you know, the MDC is coming or something, you know, whatever. And 
And then we drove, I remember driving straight from San Francisco to Chicago and pulling up in front of O'Banion's and the Necros and Minor Threat were mm-hmm. co-bill. Mm. This is August of 81 again. So God. you're like, whoa, what a life. Hanging out with Jeff Pisati, you know, at Naked Raygun House, you know, it's like amazing. Touring was a rough business, especially then, as Grant Hart told Andrea Swenson in August 2017. This circuit, as it were, Sometimes you might have to stall your tour because there's no venue in Tucson until Thursday. So on your way to Los Angeles, you're going to have to play punk night. That sort of thing, the way that we were able to get by with as little advance work as we did, was it a sign of the times or was it just our luck? But... All the information you needed was the guy's phone number. You know, go to the club and the guy's like overwhelmed to see us or, you know, overjoyed. And that's the beginning of a very good day. Nowadays, people send 15 voicemails just between the restaurant and the venue, you know. It's like we're over-informed to the point where we're tripping over our own brains with this minutia. What kind of rooms were you playing? Everything from like huge derelict burlesque houses to uh, little taquerias. Every once in a while there would be a gem where there's something about a place that just is magical. Sometimes you're playing an Irish pub where the bartender has a fondness for hardcore punk music, and uh, your connection is from that. Here's Bob again. It was so wild back then. I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but no internet, no cell phones, Mm -hmm. no GPS, no social media, no nothing. You roll into a town and you drive down Main Street until you see punk rock in a storefront. And then you go, oh, oh, wow, it's the Seventh-day Adventist vegetarian restaurant. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's some punks in there. Maps and calling cards. And it just, it's it's so insane to think about it. You have a CB so that you can find out where the speed traps are and you're talking to truckers and you're listening (laughs) to crazy Mexican radio, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're down in Southern California and you're driving across Texas and you're listening to farm futures and obituaries and, (laughs) you know, just stuff that... You know, nobody gets exposed to now because everybody's lives are so highly self-curated. The American punk scene was so small and regionally focused, the audiences sometimes didn't know what to expect, as Greg Norton explained to Brian Oak. It's interesting because when we got to, say, San Francisco, and we played our first gig at Mabue Gardens, there were people in the audience that absolutely hated us because we could play our instruments. Wasn't punk enough for them. (laughs) (laughs) But we didn't let that stop us. Later on, as the band evolved, one of the things that set Husker apart was that we didn't buy into that mantra, you know, where all these bands would be like, be different, be like us, Mm -hmm. or we're going to beat your ass. (laughs) You know, the first time we played Austin, uh, Texas, they they were throwing empty beer cans at us. And uh, as a matter of fact, Bob caught one like in air while he's playing and he like whipped it back at the guy. And we're like, 
oh, they're throwing beer cans at us when we got off and they're like oh no that, that means they like you if they <laughs> if they don't like you they throw full beer cans at you but no, we, we, we never had any, any riots break out at any of our shows. Um, I mean, that certainly are a lot of stories of punk bands playing gigs and riots breaking out. But, uh, you know, we never had any shows shut down or anything like that. And, and you know, we, we definitely never tailored the set to fit an audience. Basically, we play what we were playing, and it was usually what we had just written. And uh, the great thing, in my opinion, that made Husker a band that you had to see live was because you never knew, what are you going to hear? You're going to hear something new. You know, and people would be like, ah, I don't know any of these songs. They're not on the record that I just bought, that they just released. It's like, ah, it's because we're touring the record that we're about to record. And um, I also think it's one reason why when we got into the studio, we were able to, you know, like be pretty efficient in the studio and get things laid down, but um, kept people on their toes. We were not big fans of stage divers, mm -hmm. uh, and and the main reason there is because we moved around a lot and jumped up and down, and it's like, okay, first off, we didn't want to get hurt, and we didn't want it to hurt anybody running them through with your bass or or anything like that. I guess the uh, the the one gig that everybody keeps bringing up is that Dead Kennedys show at the Armory, where there were so many people stage diving that uh, I think we might have actually stopped and said, like, all right, everybody, calm down. But um, another gig that comes to mind, the first time we played in Philadelphia, uh, we actually ended up playing in the basement of this row house because the club that we were supposed to play, that, that fell through. So the guy, the promoter said, we're going to do it in our basement. And so they set it up. There were so many people in that house that they had a uh, video feed, closed circuit camera feed up to the TV in the living room right above us. And there were so many people in that living room that as we're playing, I'm watching the ceiling just kind of go boom, boom, boom and bounce. And it's like, all right, I hope this old, old house can <laughs> hold up to the, to the pounding it's getting. But... Uh, but it worked out great, and actually those guys ended up doing a ton of shows in their basement. Um, after that, it kind of became a thing. So, Never made it down to L.A. on that trip. Uh, we only got as far as San Francisco, but we were out on the road for like three months, and when we got back, that's when Land Speed Record was recorded. Land Speed Record was the first Who's Could Do album. It wasn't a studio album. Instead, the band recorded two sets on the same day at Minneapolis's 7th Street Entry. Lori Barbero was there, and she explained to Brian Oak they sounded like a different band. And then they went on tour, and they went out with SST bands, and then those bands were California punk that just kind of them up and that was when all the land speed record stuff started happening 
they came back and they just blew the the britches off of everybody. I mean, it was just like it didn't take that long. They had it in them, but they just didn't have the bar set for them, you know, and it did really didn't take long. It was a matter of months. Their cell man, Terry Katzman, certainly noticed the difference. They were pretty aggressive and fast when they left, but nothing nothing like when they came back from L.A. because, you know, they were playing with all, they had to keep up basically with all the punk bands in L.A., which was a daunting, you know, they played with a lot of great bands out there, so they really had to up, up the ante, and they did it admirably. So, Here's Greg Norton again. You know, three months on the road playing a lot, the band got really, really, really tight. You know, initially, uh, we're like, yeah, let's play faster than the Ramones. And then we heard the Dickies, and it's like, well, let's play faster than the Dickies. Yeah, by the time we got back to the entry, that set had been played and and fine-tuned to a point. I think we recorded it on, like, four-track or something like that. It wasn't anything super elaborate. Uh, It wasn't like being in the studio. So uh, I think we just wanted to get up and, and play that night at, at the entry, though, I remember it's like the look on a lot of people's faces who hadn't seen us since before we left and going like, what happened to you guys? Where did this come from? And I think some people didn't like it. That first set of land speed was definitely intended to be a, a punch in the in the face, right? That was stuff that, that we had been playing for for a couple of years, and that was still a part of Husker Du, that, that melodic side, that the pop side. You know, we never really forgot that. You know, I always like to say that, that Husker was the hardcore punk band that you could whistle their tunes. Don't run away. Don't run away. Don't run away. Despite its modest four-track recording, Landspeed Record was carefully handled, according to Grant. Well, we were very deliberate about it. We wanted to record when we were hot off a tour. Even once we had recorded Landspeed Record, there was, I think, perhaps as long as a year where we had uh, played around with different mastering companies and deciding who should press it up. And it was our precious little baby. We wanted to make sure it was in good hands. Here's Bob again. Mike Watt and, you know, New Alliance, Mm -hmm. they offered to put out a record once they heard what we were doing, and we gave them what became Land Speed Record. Right. And we also gave them the In a Free Land single. Mm -hmm. So, you know, New Alliance was, was a Pedro label, but they were friends with Black Flag, who were at that time in Torrance, I think. Mm-hmm. So both, you know, both South Bay labels and, you know, in the L.A. area. We had made common cause with SST in Chicago of 81, I should say. There was always the, you know, hey, we're going to put your record out someday, you know, kind of attitude from them. SST couldn't do it, but New Alliance said that they were willing to do it and that they had just received a rebate refund check from a studio. We were there with the right record, and they were there with the right cash and the right mastering, the right everything, and it came to happen. And 
Of all our records, I would have to say that that one resonates. I mean, there's no more Husker Du record than Land Speed record, especially the first half of the band's output. I mean, there's free jazz players that have embraced that record. Shortly before the January 1982 release of Landspeed Record, Husker du played two shows in Chicago with Black Flag and Saccharine Trust. Here's Henry Rollins again. And I watched both sets. I was kind of fascinated. And I saw them play over the years, like 81 to 85 or 6 or so, a lot of times. And every time it was different, but it was heading in a direction where the time I saw them in 81 was kind of that. And then they kind of morphed into the more melodic, uh, more tunefully ambitious Husker Du. They're just like these grimly determined people. And Greg, the bass player, rarely spoke. Not in a I'm not talking to you kind of way. He just was always smiling, just friendly, and just kept to himself because he was kind of the guy who sat still as these two kind of tornadoes of creativity battled on either side of him. And Bob was very terse, but friendly, but just kind of didn't say much. Grant would be at turns very quiet, and then he would like talk your ear off while you were trying to do something. And he was just wild and just really friendly, but, you know, would knock things over where Bob was almost like business-like, not like profit-minded, but just like dead serious, just sitting there with a guitar working where Grant would work and then come over and check out what you were doing. So Bob had this, had this like stooped over posture. He'd stand straight and kind of lean forward from the lumbar region of his back into the mic. Meanwhile, Grant is like sweating through his clothes and like, you know, clothes he's been wearing for two days. Just this tornado of like yelling and, and drumming. And like the approach was so different between the two of them. It was like, who's could do as these two people and a bass player? You know, after after Land Speed Record, we did put out In a Free Land, which I think is a brilliant single. In a Free Land, which appeared on the A-side of a new Alliance 7-inch in May of 1982, signaled a new power in Bob Mould's songwriting. Here's Terry Katzman. It was uh, definitely written with, with a single in mind, and I think that record is a transformational record for them, I think, and it was a, a step up from all the other stuff Bob had written previously. The old stuff was great, but that really signaled a new direction and a stronger direction in his uh, songwriting, and it was first performed at the Land Speed record show, their intention then was to have something new out when they were going to leave, when they were going to tour, and that's how they bolstered their sales. I mean, that's why the first record came out, just so they'd have something to sell on the road.
For their second LP, Husker Du would release Everything Falls Apart on Reflex Records, co-founded by Bob and Terry Katzman. Grant contributed artwork under the alias Fake Name Graphics. Here's Terry. It really began with me watching over some of the business when they were on tour. You know, then they were gone a lot, so I'd go get the mail that they would get and, and return it to the office and open up everything, make sure there was no checks in there. That was one of, one of my duties. And then anything that needed to be forwarded to them on the road or something, that's how the label sort of came to be. The album still had ties to the SST Records family, as Greg explained. Everything Falls Apart, we, uh, that was the first record that we did at Total Access in, in Redondo Beach. And uh, we were kind of hoping that that was going to be the first record that SST was going to put out for us. And uh, for some reason, Carducci wasn't feeling it. So, again, we put it out ourselves. I love Everything Falls Apart. I think, I think it's a great record. Gravity and, and the title track, Everything Falls Apart, I, I think are two of my all-time favorite Husker songs, period. I mean, everything falls apart. You looked at it as the first real kind of record that they did. That was the first record that was done away, away from home, not done in Minneapolis, done in L.A. with, with Spot producing. And I think they nailed it for that period. But again, on the Savage Young Do box, you'll hear a few outtakes, a few songs that were written around the same time as Falls Apart that didn't make the record that are, you know amazing they really started to bring out the the songwriting guns with that record and really started to get more polished as a band and when they played live This has been part three of Do You Remember, a podcast about Husker Du from The Current. I'm Mary Lucia. In our next episode, Bob, Grant, and Greg sign to SST Records and unleash a string of masterpieces. Then Arcade started as a single record. They would come into SST and like argue and drink coffee and then fight and then go into the van and work on songs and like take walks to get away from each other. They were just kind of slam together and then explode apart and like have written three more songs. That was Henry Rollins again. You'll hear more from him as well as the band on the next episode. Do You Remember was written by Michelangelo Matos, edited by Anna Reed, produced by David Safar, engineered by Michael DeMarc, and directed by Brett Baldwin. Brian Oak and Andrea Swenson contributed interviews to this episode. Special thanks to Rick Carlson and our guests, Lori Barbero, Jello Biafra, Terry Katzman, Henry Rollins, and the members of Husker Du. You can find most of the music from this episode on Savage Young Du from the Numero Group. This podcast is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. I'm Mary Lucia. This is Do You Remember from the Current? Thank you.